I'm Aaron Armstrong. And Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch says, booby trapped? Dude, grow up. It's breast trapped. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. It doesn't show signs of stopping. Yeah, hey. Did you watch a different movie? There's a part at the end where they booby trap all the, the, the radio equipment. And they say booby trapped like three times. And I was like, where did booby trap come from? I didn't look it up. I just made a joke about breasts. Mammary trapped, I think. Scientific Uh, term. Everyone has them. Everyone has them. Uh, Yeah, well, we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme. If we remember, we compare and contrast. It's our second week of our sixth annual Christmas theme month. This time, ho, ho, ho. Now I have a theme month, <laughs> whatever our theme is, where we're going through the Die Hard movies. It's also the last movie that can really, in any respect, be called a Christmas movie. Um, our, uh, our our actual episode that will drop on Christmas will be, of course, uh, Live Free or Die Hard, which takes place uh, in the, the Less than holiday Christmassy time uh, uh, of of July Fourth, <laughs> uh, Independence Day uh, weekend, Peter. But so this movie did this movie did come out um, Independence Day weekend. It came out it on July Fourth. Yeah, yeah uh, Jan- uh, July second, nineteen ninety. Which I, I looked third and fourth two different places. You saw second. Uh, I did see second. Yeah. Mm, okay. Uh, but uh, that was true. The first Die Hard too, like. They were committed to to trying to release these action Christmas movies in the dead of summer, uh, and they they every single one of them released between May and July until uh, the movie that we are still sticking to that we're not covering. Although you never know, you know, infinite universes, infinite possibilities, all that stuff. Uh, which is uh, a good day to die hard, which came out in February, which has less to do with the Christmas season and and more to do with the studio having no faith in it. Yeah, that's uh, that's the 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 reason for the season of February is a uh, dumping ground. Dumping ground. Uh, but yeah, we're doing Die Hard two, colon maybe Die Harder, and let's start there. Peter, what's the fucking name of this movie? <laughs> I call it Die. I call it Die Hard two. Uh, I prefer to think of Die Harder as a very bad tagline. I do not. I do, I do not understand what. Okay, so the, the the title of the movie begs the question of what the title Die Hard meant in the first place. Well, there's die. I mean, so they were. This is 100 percent true. They were going to make a uh, sixth movie that was supposed to be the final one. Uh, and I, I swear to God, this sounds like a joke, but the the plan title was Die Hardest. <laughs> Which is uh, German for the hardest. Yes, it's German for the hard. Yeah, this one is technically German for uh, the hard to the harder. <laughs> Which sounds like it was Babelfish translated into German yeah. and then back to English, then into ancient Sumerian, then into German, then back to English. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is tough, though, because like the the. 
the like cover of the DVDs, some places, Wikipedia, IMDb, has it Die Hard 2 colon Die Harder. The movie title that we see just as Die Hard 2. Now, I've watched enough horror movies to know that just because, like, the title on the screen may mean fucking nothing, right? There's enough horror movies where, like, you're watching, like, Bloody Summer and the, and, and the, the, um, the, the actual title that appears on the screen is, like, Varsity Beach. And you're like, what? <laughs> Did I get the wrong thing? But, uh, they're yeah. Like, it's- they're like, the best copy of this movie was actually uh, found in Indonesia, where it was titled, um, do not go to the beach. Do not go to the beach under any circumstances. Yeah. So, I do think that um, potentially the person – I mean, I think the person who made the title cards – thought the name of the movie was Die Hard 2. And I think the person that made the poster thought the name of the movie was Die Hard 2 colon Die Harder. And I think uh, we're never going to know what the name of this movie is. Um, it's, I prefer to refer to it as 58 Minutes. Uh, that would have been a uh, more accurate title. So yeah, let's start there. So we uh, Die Hard, huge success. Some some may say a uh, a spectacular success. I I don't know if you'd say that, Peter. I, I would say that. I would agree with you. Okay, great. You're uh, getting a no argument for me, my man. Big hit, uh, unexpected hit. Uh, of course, I mean we're we're living in the days of the sequels now. Let alone in the nineties, the they're like, let's make another. Uh, and they, uh, much like Die Hard was based on the book Nothing Lasts Forever, they go to kind of pulpy books to kind of find their inspiration. They don't necessarily find a um, uh, a book by the same author, but there's an, uh, kind of an airport thriller about a cop who has 58 minutes, his wife's on a plane to stop terrorists taking over an airport um, that comes out in 1987 that feels like a perfect fit. Now – uh, we're going to find this with almost all Die Hard movies. Uh, actually, every single Die Hard movie except the last one. <laughs> Important to note. Um, this movie was originally just planned to be made into 58 minutes, an, an adaptation of the novel, when uh, they decided to go, hey, you know what? This plot seems a little similar to a movie that we just had called Die Hard. Hey! Maybe instead of just making this that people will call a diehard ripoff, we turn it into a diehard sequel. And that's essentially going to be something that we're going to talk about for the next two movies as well. Peter, I don't know if you realize that uh, every single diehard movie except the last one uh, did not start out as a diehard movie. Even I, we didn't mention this last week, but I think I mean, we, I guess we kind of did a little bit. You can even make the case that Nothing Lasts Forever originally started out as an adaptation of Nothing Lasts Forever and then became <laughs> diehard. Yeah, yeah. The 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 series is just um, it shows you how committed studio execs are, how to out of squeezing every penny they have yeah. into optioned rights, um, because yeah, once they pay for a script and they have it locked in, they're like, huh, is it? It's way more expensive for us to hire another screenwriter to do this and we would have to pay them uh, you know another set of royalties if there's any basis in the new script yeah. what we could do instead is pay somebody to punch up the script as we did with the previous die hard yeah um so there so these options turn into scripts turn into scripts that get punched up and then uh i don't know people go to wga very mad because they didn't make as much money off of the movie as they thought uh do you know the name of the uh the lead character 
in 58 minutes? Uh, yeah, I think his name was uh, Don McLean. You guessed it, Frank Malone. <laughs> Don McLean, he sings, he sings American Pie for the last eight of the 58 minutes. <laughs> uh, that's how long the standard version of American Pie is, so it is. It's like eight minutes, 40 seconds. Yeah, it's a long, long one. It's a long Good end. one. It, like, hypothetically, if you're working at a radio station and need to take a dump. Great song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so this one, next, next week is actually the funniest, I think, of, like, trying to make a different movie and then accidentally making a diehard movie where it starts out as something called Simon Says, then becomes the lethal, then it becomes the script for Lethal Weapon 3 or 4, only to end up with the Die Hard 3. Uh, but much like John McClane, who kind of has to get dragged kicking and screaming into his adventures, Die Hard movies have to get dragged kicking and screaming uh, into into being Die Hard movies. And, you know... Yeah, we, that's, that's just like John McClane. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't want to be there either. Yeah. And the only one that, like, gave up and wanted to be there... Also, is a movie where John McClane and and Bruce Willis kind of gives up, but is just there. So everything we've heard. So it's very good meta uh, commentary on the movies. But one of the things that's going to be really fun to discuss, I think, uh, as as it comes to sequels, is Die Hard really has its kind of way of like let's try all the different types of sequels that there are where we take a character and put them in a whole new situation we take a character we put them in the same situation we almost do a reboot with the character and Die Hard 2 is like you almost can have a choose your own adventure of Die Hard sequels like did you like John McClane but don't want to see the same thing again go to Die Hard 3 do you know did you like John McClane uh, but want to see what he was like in 20 years when uh, technology's passed by and he doesn't know anything works go to live for your Die Hard did you like Die Hard and want to see it just in a, the exact same movie in a different location? Great news. Die Hard 2 colon, potentially. Die Harder, potentially. 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 So, yeah, this uh, this is a movie. I've, uh, I used to call it my third favorite Die Hard. I don't know if that's where we'll end up as we go through this. Uh, I, I did knock it down a half a star. I was the highest rating of, like, anyone I follow on Letterboxd. I gave it four and a half stars. I've always maintained that this movie, like, nothing's going to be as good as Die Hard. But this movie is a ton of fun. Uh, and, and, like, it does this great, like, hey, we are going to do the kind of the same thing that we did in the first movie. But we're going to make it big. We're going to make it silly. We're going to run all around and have these great set pieces. Uh, we're going to call attention to the fact that we know we're doing the exact same thing. And it's going to be fun. Uh, and And that's kind of always where I excuse me, have landed on it. Um, and I'm not the only one that thought that. Like, I, I do think there are some critics like Roger Ebert, who we, we talked about how Die Hard initially was like, oh, another dumb action movie with, with too much blood and not enough brains. And it's like, and then, you know, as it became a hit and, and some critics really latched onto it, uh, there was almost like an immediate reevaluation that people were doing. And I feel like that happens a lot with like action genre, horror, sci-fi movies. Like the critics of the 70s and 80s and 90s especially were were seemingly always like, yep, this is dumb. Like how many movies like The Thing or Alien or all these other movies has like just a slew of shitty reviews until people go, oh, wait, is this amazing? Um 
tons. Uh, but Roger Ebert was one. He gave the first one two stars. And then th- Die Hard 2 is actually the, the highest rated he ever gave a Die Hard movie. He gave it three and a half stars and said he he kind of – it's one of those funny Ebert reviews where he basically doesn't acknowledge that he gave the first one a thumbs down and just goes in like, at this point, John McClane's like James Bond. We don't care if it makes sense. We just are there to have fun. Um but that's kind of how I've always thought about this movie, where it suffered, Peter, uh, and why it uh, was a little less fun than I remembered it, is just it's the first time I've watched it literally essentially like the day after I watched Die Hard. And I think it's easier to see the the areas where you go, oh, this they, – they took some they took some changes. They made some changes to the character. They really stretched to try to make this part work. This part's a little eye-rolling that just don't compare well to, you know, the best action movie of all time. Yeah, yeah. Um, overall, I ended up dropping this a half star as well. My memories of it were not uh, – were more positive, I think, than where I ended up. But um, it's still just nice to have – John McClane and this particular era of of special yeah. effects, uh, big budget uh, filmmaking. Um, it's just, just this era. Is, I have, I have very warm feelings for, um, and, and this particular iteration of the character I have warm feelings for. Though this movie does diminish a lot of what I liked about the first movie, notably the efficiency, <coughs> the tightness, the, the the fact that it rewards you for close attention. Um, John McClane kind of gets plot armor in a lot of scenes. Yeah. Um, it kind of, you know what it reminds, reminded me of was John, Mc, this movie feels very much like, okay, so there's like a prologue act where John McClane discovers the, the, the plot going on. <laughs> Right, and yeah. establishes his wife's in the in the air, and then he kills those two. Well, he kills one of the guys and scares off the other. Then he's in the police commissioner's office, um, the the Dennis Franz's office. Uh, also funny that Dennis Franz played famously played cops on TV and ended up playing. Yeah, he, I mean, here. I think just a few years from now, he's considered the sexiest man on on television. <laughs> Because he says shit live on TV. Uh, uh, the reason – I just remember that uh, that Seinfeld episode where like George is styling his hair before he goes out and then he looks at a giant poster of Dennis Franz and winks. <laughs> That's good. He's a he's like bald, they have no bald face, icon. They have bald no facial features icon. in common, but they do have that weird like uh, un- unkempt tuft of hair on the top of their head. They just yeah. can't really figure out what to do with. Um, and then from that point on, if it rem- the, what it reminded me of is um, a video game where like John McClane, it's like a dead space or something. Like John McClane, his ultimate goal is to save his wife, but he keeps there keep being uh, missions he needs to go off in different parts of the airport yeah. to take care of. Like, and then he, he keeps yeah. coming back to his like home base, which is the air traffic control tower. Yeah, which uh, which video game did it remind you the most of? Was it Dead Space or was it like um, uh, the Die Hard arcade game? <laughs> we didn't talk about this all last week, but Die Hard actually had a couple good games. The Die Hard was- trilogy for PlayStation was a pretty good game, and I liked that each level did something different. Yeah, but each game all of them like each game was like kind of a different game. It yeah, but like a war- it was almost like a, a mini game collection. It was. Yeah, the only thing that was funny about all of these is that Bruce Willis for I, I, he probably would do it now based on the movies that he's starring in, but he wouldn't give his likeness to video games, so it's always like. 
some guy who on the picture who looks nothing like Bruce Willis. And it's always a voice that's not trying to copy him for that same reason. Yeah. And then I just remembered, holy shit, I just remembered he was he gave his likeness and I'm sure it was expensive to a third person shooter game called Apocalypse. Have you heard of this? Oh, yeah. It came out I do remember that. Yeah. Um, so I think it was supposed to be pretty bad, uh, or middling, which a middling PlayStation third person shooter now has to be fucking unplayable, right? Um, I mean, even the, the good ones are sometimes unplayable. Yeah, yeah. They kind of just feel like weird prototypes for what we have now. Um, but anyways, so he ended up giving his license to something called Apocalypse, um, a, a, few, a few years later. And then there was a, First-person shooter, which also probably uh, isn't that great, uh, that's just like uh, Assault on Nakatomi Plaza. Um, oh, I yeah. Playing when I was a uh, PC PC purist who only only played like FPSs and strategy games on my gaming PC that my dad and I built together. <laughs> For a series that does, it seems like it would have a slew of really awful games, uh, actually had some good ones. I mean, it also seems like, to your point, I, I think the calling it out as a video game is 100% right. Like, theoretically, you could make a good video game out of these movies, like a modern day third person or first person action game and have a lot of fun set pieces. Or even like, I'm surprised they haven't gone the route of like, we're going to do a good version that's like a canon sequel, like especially when those were all the rage and the... Uh, in the late 2000s, early 2010s, like where they're making like, okay, Alien Cor- uh, Colonial Marines is a real sequel and the Ghostbuster sequel and that kind of stuff. Oh, the, yeah. The era where they were like, this is a canon adventure. Yeah. Um, in in this particular universe. Yeah, I could I could see that. I could see that. Um, but yeah, this is the, but the structure is inherently that's both a, a way that I was able to uh, hang my hat on this movie and kind of enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But it's also like a, a severe knock against this movie where it feels like there's like an opening. There's a bunch of set pieces. And then there's like a 10 minute climax once he gets onto uh, General General Esperanza's whatever 747 or 765 yeah. or whatever the fuck ju- fucking jumbo jet is. Uh, it feels like the movie is just like, uh, and then a bunch of uh, stuff happens, and then John comes back beaten and battered, and then he's going to try and stop uh, the Colonel once more. Yeah, so I'm gonna. I, I I think that's right, and you know, there's a lot that I want to talk about that I like about this movie. But I think that besides that part, which it does feel extremely disconnected, like, um, you know, this, they, you know, you think of this one as the one that kind of takes place at the airport in the same way that, uh, you know, the first Die Hard takes place in the building. But it really doesn't. Like, he has incredible freedom. He's not trapped in the airport. He has freedom to move about he can leave and go to the tarmac he can you know go to a church because he just you know misses his old pal jesus uh he has he's not even though the airport is like the location under assault it's really not the same as the first one where he's not like trapped in it and then the part though that like i think i really realized this time is like oh this is kind of what's missing. And there's actually two things that I think it just doesn't do as well as all the other movies. This is the movie specifically where it feels like he is trying to put himself in the middle of the action. And I understand that's because he is. <laughs> yeah, that was the other thing I wanted to note. The yeah. first movie, he's like, I don't want to be here. In this movie, he's like a paranoid nut job. <laughs> Yeah, telling everyone, like, he he's not the person who's like, look, I just need to let 
the police or whoever else just do their job. I need to like move the baton this far and then I'm just one guy. Right? Like, I need to let the other people who I trust, because I'm a cop, and I think that cops are good, um, to, 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 to take over and, and do their job. They're better equipped. They know the area. Uh, this is a movie where he is constantly, you're right, like, he's the one lone sane man in a world of crazies. And he is, con- like, and, and, you know, at first it's like, well, maybe it's because his wife is in immediate danger but that was the case on in die hard as well right like they they know they were executing hostage hostages and killing people hell she was the second in command after they killed the first in command right like his wife was so like he it, it does feel different where he is he he's not having to do like uh can't believe I have to do this shit because everyone else and the systems around me are failing. He is saying he's like yelling at the system's face. You suck and you're bad. And you're incompetent. I got to do it myself. And it's that's the part that watching them so close together, I really thought was like, yeah, that that's what's different. And it has been a while since I've seen the other two. So we'll see if my theory holds up. But, I mean, Die Hard 3 is all about him getting, like, blackmailed into doing shit and running around town. Like, he he doesn't want to necessarily have to do all that shit. And Die Hard 4, again, is the same thing of, like, him just trying to get his daughter away from uh, Justin Long, which is a, you know, a noble uh noble conquest while yeah, the city a PC family yeah while the while the whole while the whole yeah ideally uh ideally his daughter would be dating John Hodgman <laughs> <laughs> what if the end of that movie he's like finally I broke up you and Justin Long but you're betrothed to John Hodgman <laughs> I figured out enough of this fancy technology to find you a real husband on this dating website. Okay, Cupid. <laughs> okay, PC Cupid. <laughs> What's funny is that uh, I also would bet a lot of money that John McClane is a is an anti PC. I was fan. gonna say the same thing that oh. he's uh, you know he'd be a Mac Mac guy purely because he's you know you've come into the John McClane zone. Don't expect it to be PC. He's we're gonna have a lot guy. of <laughs> we're gonna have a lot of negative things to say about you know other races around. <laughs> it is very funny in this movie where he's like some okay. Some of it is that he's trying to figure out fax machines, which is something that like I never even had to learn. Yeah, um, but I was born the year after this movie came out. Um, Carl but, Winslow gets it though. Carl Winslow gets it. Um, but, but he's like, an LA trying cop. to drop he's this a theme. Fancy like, LA cop. They keep trying to drop this theme that, like, John McClane doesn't understand technology. <clears throat> and in a normal movie, at the end of it, he'd have to, like, internalize some of the lessons that he, that some, that, you know, he's, he has to embrace technology to some degree. But instead, he's like, I hate technology. So I'm going to hang out with this dork from the, fl- the flight control tower. And he's going <laughs> to tell me all this radio bullshit. Hey, how do planes work? But that, I mean, that is the core problem that I was talking about, right? Like, he doesn't know how any of this shit works, right? And all the people that, um, know how the shit works are involved and incompetent, which makes him being like the primary carrier 
of 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 saving the day and moving on the plot, no matter if the SWAT team, the army, air traffic controllers, the local police, like it doesn't matter. He always recognizes that he's smarter than all these people. While you're right, literally doesn't know fucking anything about any of this shit. And why would he? You know, he's fucking in the basement with a janitor being like, how do planes fly? <laughs> you know? And he's like, I gotta do it. And like, of course, it, he's John McClane and it's a diehard movie, so he saves the day. But like, him being actively trying to get involved in every decision, in every room where they're making decisions, in every action, is is somewhat antithetical to what makes the first one uh first one so special. And then the other thing that I think, and this is uh that like I think they co- they make a big swing to correct in Die Hard 3, uh, is that it doesn't have a villain that is as engaging and i love william sandler i actually think he he like he does a great job with the character i love the way you know he has more people that kind of get added to his band like john amos and the guy that's playing the you know the 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 dictator whatever what general uh esperanza esperanza but like it we're coming off of fucking alan rickman playing Hans Gruber, you know, this this like one of a kind movie villain played by one of our finest actors in one of our finest performances, William Sandler just being um a Sadler. <laughs> Sorry, William Sandler of course is is Adam Sandler's uh uh father. Played by Adam Sandler. In, you in believe, if Ad, yeah. If if Adam Sandler had a father that was interested in acting, you know, he'd be in every one of those fucking movies. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm saying that Adam Sandler actually didn't have a father. It's kind of like a time paradox situation where Adam Sandler dressed up like his father and did a stupid voice, and then made Adam Sandler. Ah, oh. it's pretty conceptual. I can see it's pretty far out there. Yeah, pretty wacko of you. Pretty, pretty much like uh, a hit Adam Sandler movie, like Click. Oh man! Whenever I see that movie on TV, I click to the next channel and hope that Click is also on there, so I can do a. <laughs> and it's at an earlier point in the movie. Yeah. Oh, no commercials on this channel. This is much <laughs> Thanks for understanding what I was saying. It could have been confusing. I think to- for... totally get it uh, when Click's involved. But yeah, like I mean. Like, they, they, you know, next movie they have, um, you know, a Hans Gruber relative played by Jeremy Irons, like one of our great villains. And then they have Timothy Oliphant, who is like <clears throat> menacing when he's playing a hero. Like, Timothy Oliphant rules in Live Free or Die Hard. Like, it, 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 it's, I think on paper, if you're going like, oh, how does that compare to Jeremy Irons and Alan Rickman? It's It looks tough, but he still has the same calm, evil menace with a little bit of uh, – a, a little bit more, you know, 2000s energy. But, like, it still works. And I, I, I do think having – He has spiked hair, so you know he's willing to put the work in, you know? Yeah. Um, I do think that, like, William Sadler is just like a, a 90s – action movie villain and he does a good job with that but he doesn't rise to like where they've even close to where they've set the bar for what a diehard villain is it's also not a good use of william sadler you want william sadler to be a little bit bumbling like you you want william sadler yeah, he's, a, he's be, a good second in command yeah yeah like you like it uh four years later he would have been in shawshank redemption 
um, as uh, a guy who is lovable, yet also capable of a lot of darkness. Um, and then in, what does it say, is in The Mist, uh, not lovable, but like a character who's kind of like a bumbling doofus, but the sort of bumbling doofus that you know, like why people in the town love him. Um, and then uh, Bill and Ted's bogus journey a few years earlier, like that, uh, him portraying death as this like menacing, terrifying figure, but a little bit bumbling. Yeah. Is like, is the charm. And then my favorite William Sadler performance like by far. Uh, also, I guess in VFW, we, which we've both seen, he's he's a similar. He's sort of like a lovable yeah. goof, but also he has like a, a darkness to him. Um, my favorite William Sadler performance, though, is the first episode of Tales from the Crypt. Oh yeah, he plays that uh, executioner, um, and he's speaking to the camera the whole time. And yep. somehow, in twenty something minutes or whatever, um, he manages to make anybody who doesn't know William Sadler is, and it's just like, he, he just thinks of him as like a character actor. That guy makes you immediately like look up his name, figure out who he is. Like <laughs> the next time you see him in a movie, you're going to point him out and say his fucking name. Like he's so, so good in that Tales from the Crypt episode. And he's someone who's been in some of my favorite movies. Yeah. He just, he isn't quite the type of villain that they need in a diehard movie. Like I said, if, if this was, if this was under siege or under siege two, yeah. and he's the, you know, also I, this is the only movie in the series where, you know, the, and I get trying to like, Hey, we're keeping a lot of stuff the same, like a, like a lot of things, which we'll probably talk about here in a second. Like l- we need to make some changes so that, um, the scenario is not replaying itself. So they do, you know, hey, in the first movie, they seem like, you know, ideological terrorists trying to, you know, uh, serve some sort of right wing interests or stuff like that. Um, and they're just thieves after money. And then, you know, in in this one, they are actually like, you know, uh, uh, the screenwriter uh, D'Souza or whatever is talks about like it's this idea of like people being inspired by like Iran Contra and when and when Iran Contra gets like you know uh, denied by the government and saying yep we agree that's bad these are the type of people who are like no like you know taking over and toppling democracies is what we should be doing like that's uh, because we have to stop communism. Uh, it, it doesn't quite fit in the same way because the whole thing I think with and, – and the next two movies are just people after money again. So I think one of the reasons why John McClane works when he's taking out these outsized bad guys is that like why – John McCain is a is a cop and like a cop is stopping these like petty criminals and thieves and he understands kind of their language and that's kind of why he's able to defeat them. And that's why, like, Hans Gruber is not a petty criminal, but his motivations are the same. Jeremy Irons not, like, a small-time criminal, but, like, his motivations to get rich and to outsmart people doing it are the same. Same with Timothy Oliphant. They're using bigger tools. They have more men. They have more money. But the idea here is that, hey, there's no difference from the guy sticking up the 7-Eleven as Hans Gruber or Jeremy Irons or anyone else. And so I think putting him up against someone who has like political intentions and doesn't want money and doesn't fall into all those same trappings that has that allows John McClane, you know, this this one dumb cop to to come out the winner in the end of these these encounters it doesn't really work as well in this one because he's just fighting a villain 
not someone that a New York cop would typically be able to say outwit. Yeah, yeah. And, and this he's a typical villain. I do think that like one of the most interesting things in this movie is is that General Esperanza and Colonel Stewart it is essentially similar to Long Kiss Goodnight. It's sort of a conspiracy theorist thing. Um, yeah. Because the idea is is, is essentially this. Um, the towards the this movie takes place uh, right at the end of the Cold War, um, but like after uh, resources had been sort of shifted. Um, mostly like by George H.W. Um, resources sort of shifted in the late 80s, early, early 90s to be um, more uh, on the uh, war on drugs than on the uh, anti-communist plot. Yeah. So we had sort of there's even a reference to the domino theory. Um, yep. So what did he say? Well, and he calls all the media people pinkos and like. Yes. Yeah. The dominoes will fall no more um, is, is what uh, he says in one of his inspiring speeches. And yeah, it, it's inspired by uh, Iran-Contra. It's inspired by our various, uh, I want to use the term meddling, but they're war atrocities. They're, they're were war, Reagan and George H.W. Bush were war criminals um, yep. in Central and South America. And uh, this character doesn't have the push-pull that Hans Gruber or uh, whatever his brother Jeremy Irons is named. Um, Something Gruber, Gruber, probably. Yeah. Um, doesn't have that push-pull where they're sort of like alluring and sexy and then yeah. um, violent and terrifying. Like that that's sort of allure. He's just scary and he's just a menacing villain, which, as you say, fits, fits in a sort of different series more. Um, same thing with... Uh, with um, Timothy Olfant, he does have that sort of push-pull. I'm not saying his performance is on the level of Hans Gruber. I don't think anybody could yeah. be. Um, Again, we're, I Jeremy, understand Jeremy that Irons can't do it. And Jeremy Irons is, a, is an, also an all-time actor. Yeah, um, you can't – I mean, we, we understand that we're, we're uh, comparing, like, to the one of the greatest of all time. It's just yes. like, it, is it in the same vein and fair. does it succeed? Yeah. In, in three and four. And this one, you're right. Like, it's it's not that it's a bad motivation. It's not that it doesn't have interesting moments. It's not like the actors don't do a good job. It just doesn't belong ultimately in a yeah. diehard movie. And I really want to talk about this because the, the thing that it reminds me most is the capture of Manuel Noriega – um, in, in Panama, um, the short-lived. Uh, yeah, you, short you were lived. there. Uh, I was there. Um, they played uh, Nancy Sinatra's "These Boots Are Made for Walking," mm-hmm. um, and I liked that song, so I was having a pretty good time. Um, You're like, wait, I want to hear it another three hundred times. Why are you stopping? <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually they were like, "Is this torture?" And I was like, "No, it's just a fucking. It's a, a banger." It's a banger. This is Frank Sinatra's daughter. <laughs> you guys heard this? You know this? You uh, heard Frankie, Frankie Blue Eyes' daughter, she can wail. She can wail. Um, but my point is that uh, it's actually sort of debatable whether or not this was inspired by the uh, capture of Noriega. Because while it maps best onto the capture of Noriega in that he was the reason that Noriega got 
funding from the United States was because he was strictly an anti-communist yep. and he, but he was someone who was kind of playing both sides and he got a big head about it. And he just kept drug money flowing through Panama, kept drugs flowing through Panama because he just thought that he could keep, if he kept his fight up against the communists and making notable, notable little uh, exchanges with them that, you know, making arrests against famous communists and making it very, very uh, wide, uh, widely seen that he could, he could uh, trick the Americans. And then one day the American government seemed to turn on him and he felt like this was a betrayal. He was like, I, you know, like I, I served the American government. Um, you just didn't, you know, I, I didn't know you were going to take the drug thing so seriously. Um, and Esperanza tracks on that exactly, which is that he's like a cutthroat, brutal, essentially cr- criminal who uh, forced his way into government. And then uh, also Esperanza is played by Franco Nero. Did you notice that? Yeah. That's who, who did not want to be in this movie, by the way. He did not. And then his schedule opened up and I'm like, Franco, I don't think you're above Die Hard 2. <laughs> Maybe in the 70s. <laughs> I don't think in the 90s you're above Die Hard 2. I mean, hold on. Like, I love Django and stuff, but like... He did enter the ninja, like yeah. I mean, come on, yeah. It, that's what I'm saying. Like him, Franco, and his power, Franco, take the paycheck. Um, <laughs> at the peak of his powers, maybe I get him being a little bit, you know, uh, hurt by this, but uh, not now. Uh, but anyways, he he, uh, the character of Esperanza, like you know, Colonel Stewart and. Um, Who's the other guy? Major Major Grant, Colonel Stewart, Major Grant clearly like worked with him. Maybe he they helped overthrow the government. For well, somewhere in Panama, time. right? Because something happened there where they decided to align with him. It's uh yeah yeah and it's um, Granada, a, a, fic- a fictional country called uh, Valverde. Um is yeah, but something happens because because there's that whole Grenada, thing where yeah. they killed a guy and they're like. And he's like, yeah, I wish, I wish I was with you guys in Panama. And he's, you know, and uh, John Amos is like, so do we. And then he cuts his throat. So, so like, clearly something happened that made them yeah. go, like, to turn against the United States in Panama. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Um, they, they got uh, into this, like, right-wing um, anti-communist, um, you know, uh, junta group. Um, so glad but- we're past all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this was a serious movement. And like, you know, say what you will about the deep state. Like there were CIA forces who were fighting long after the Cold War maintained their fight against um, uh, against uh, communist governments. Yeah. And like this sort of tips at uh, deep state conspiracies, but also the real life thing that like the American government has fought very hard to depose socialist and communist governments around the world. And the idea that a few of them would become radicalized and try and break off from their government is like a very fucking cool idea. And I wish the movie spent more time on that and like a little bit less time just throwing John into the grinder. Well, that's the problem. It is a really good at writing Harlan plot that just doesn't need John McClane. I think that's where the <laughs> You're con- that's, right. that's where yeah. the con- that's where the conflict really I think is coming from and why it's still like the the you, you look at those things like in separate buckets and you're like, "Oh, I like this plot about these like right-wing military bros." And yeah, like 
the problem with like the deep state shit isn't that there hasn't been a deep state in this country. Like that's what the fucking CIA is. The problem uh, is that Trump and infects everything in this and is instead of calling attention to like America's you know 80 year history of like toppling uh uh liberal uh, liberal elected officials and and uh socialist uh governments across the across the world it's like oh no, actually the deep state is hillary clinton and the pope fucking baby so that i don't get to become president <laughs> like uh in the same way that like uh, you know, fake news was a, it has been a real problem in this country, and then Trump gets his hands on it, and it's like it's anything that's critical of me, and like he just unfortunately just says stuff over and over again, and then all of a sudden like his meaning is the real meaning. Uh, so I, I yeah, I I don't think you're I don't think it's conspiratorial to say the CIA did a bunch of uh terrible fucking things without any like direct authorization from any government force. <laughs> yeah yeah like i don't think the diehard series is particularly apt to take on this concept no. though they did come up with they did come up with a thoroughly evil villain yeah um a, a right-wing nut job who um who is so uh so focused on winning the cold war that he's willing to kill american end american lives as sort of like a cost of the war um and then also I, there's there's hints of this sort of uh, cuz he's the only true the, patriot right and yeah I mean, yeah and there's there's hints of this at the end of die hard 1 involving the johnsons where they're talking about like Man, it's just like being a fucking Saigon. Like <laughs> them being fucking pumped about shooting people from a helicopter, like yep. that's from a Huey. <laughs> like, like thinking about the end of the Vietnam War is like a rad time. Like that's that's clearly like some scriptwriters and producers being uh, anti-war and trying to fit it into their cop movie. Weirdly, but what's funny <laughs> is that the movie doesn't really the movie doesn't really work because I don't really understand why General Esperanza can't go free. The movie is pro-drug war. There's a moment when there's a moment when John McClane says, and correct me if I'm wrong, John McClane says, if Esperanza gets on that plane, we're screwed. What does that mean? <laughs> I, I am unclear. If the I, American government lets uh, uh, one drug dealer go, we're screwed? Yeah, I mean... It feels like fight. It feels like this movie is secretly an anti-drug war movie because, like, the more they escalate things, the more that, like, if they had just this is not like this is not like Hans Gruber's plan. Where if they just no. laid back, all those civilians would have died. In this, if they had just laid back, like maybe some cops at the airport would have been yeah, killed. Go, yeah, go let the military deal with it later. I guess I don't know. Like, yeah, like which they which by the way they probably will like. The fact that one of their majors and one of their colonels aligns themselves with some, like, drug-dealing dictator in Central America, like, I don't know how to tell you this, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, but they're in a lot of shit. Like, speaking <laughs> of speaking of Manuel Nor Noriega, uh, that guy didn't come out okay. Yeah. That's the other weird thing about this movie. I can't tell if it was inspired by that because I was it, like, okay, I don't think it could have been. I so mean, I can see, like, DeSouza adding some, like, lines, like, because, you know, that would have been 89. This comes out in 90. So, like, they have to be, like, mid-shooting yes. or, or post-production. And maybe they're like, shit, this is topical. So, like, the script, yeah, the script it's was more written before country. the invasion, but then the movie was written mid, in, the production started in November, so mid, uh, 
mid-invasion, and then we got Noriega, um, we got Noriega in December. So I guess it wasn't mid-invasion, the invasion was really short. It was right before the invasion, but it was when people were talking about, like, what is the U.S. going to do? What is the U.S. going to do? Because all this stuff has months of build-up, right? Um, and then uh, December, we got him of 89, and this movie comes out in July of 90. So, like, I, I, I understand that these movies are kind of ad-libbed and stuff yeah. has worked around, but I, I think the fact that it's probably was only lightly inspired by Noriega hints at the fact that, like, the U.S. government, particularly Reagan and George H.W. Bush, did a lot of fucking meddling in South and Central America, not including Iran and the Middle East, but, like, focusing on South and Central America, because that's what this is supposed to be. Um, that, like, <laughs> sure, it seems like it's about Noriega, because it really tracks onto the Noriega story. But, like, yeah. we did so much fucking around that we, like, really <laughs> every inspired country... by a lot of people that went to post. <laughs> I know. Well, and that's, I mean, that's ultimately what what just doesn't quite fit. Like, I understand John McClane wanting to save his wife, but, like, what does John McClane have to say about, like, oh, my God, the only person that can stop a, a, a right-wing dictator using drugs to, to, to uh, stop socialism and prop up fascism is a New York City cop. A, yeah, like, it's it, like whereas it goes like the only person who can stop a thief is a is a cop. I, I said it before, but like that's the disconnect, and that's why like I actually like. I mean, I'm still very positive on this movie. I gave it four stars, and I think it makes sense to to just talk about what doesn't work and like where I think they went wrong. And I think you know, say what you will about the other movies and, and where they land for you, I think they do figure that out and course correct. Part of it is that they get McTiernan back. Uh, for the next one, and I think they just realized, like, okay, here's some things that worked and here's some things that didn't. I think they do some things that don't work in the next two movies as well. But I think that, like, who are our villains that McLean is fighting against? And, like, what is McLean's general enthusiasm for bringing the fight to them? And I think they tend to get that a little more right uh, from from here on out. Um, but I I agree with something you said earlier, which is – like, if you watch the scenes, like, the whole plot of the bad guys is good. John McClane doing John McClane stuff is good. Adding – getting a little, like, hello to all our favorite characters from the first movie is good. It just doesn't fit together and that's why it feels like a series of missions as opposed to, like, something that f it's more cohesive. Yeah, and at the same time, um, John McTiernan, who had a pretty a pretty fun track record. Um, I don't like love all of his movies, but pretty fun track record um, before he went to jail, um, which we can talk about next week. Uh, but he was directing The Hunt for Red October while this movie was was happening. Um, the the diehard money machine would not stop to allow him to to come <laughs> to, back to and wait. It. Yeah, it was it, he was off shooting The Hunt for Red October, which is inarguably one of the best American thrillers ever made. Uh, yeah. I, uh... You're saying uh, Last Action Hero? <laughs> uh, I meant Hunt for Red October, but, you know... Uh, Hunt for Red October is really good. That's what I'm saying. It's one of the yeah, best yeah. Uh, the best American thrillers ever made. Uh, I, well, I see I wouldn't go that far, but um, but it's have good. you seen I mean, it recently? I watched no. it again recently because I read a, a review of it and I was like, yeah, it's a it's a Tom Clancy novel, and I watched it. and I was like, holy shit, this nails everything it tries to do except for Sean Connery's accent. Um, 
<laughs> you're right. He wasn't good at playing a Russian. <laughs> I, I forgot. Here, I give me Highland. another vodka. I vodka. Highlander. Vodka. <laughs> I watched Highlander recently, and I forgot that uh, there's a, there's a, there's scenes in Scotland, and then he, he plays Spanish. He shows up, and yeah. he's a Spaniard. He's a Span. He's called yeah the Spaniard. Why didn't they make him the Scotsman? Like it doesn't make any goddamn sense. He's like you can't die, McLeod. God. I'm from Spain. <laughs> well, that's a good shit. But yeah, so just like before shit. we, we got to move on. Like, yeah. This, Hold, this is, also, this, by the way, uh, Peter, I, I, we'll have to talk about it next week because uh, I I didn't know why he stopped making movies. And you're like, until he went to jail. And I looked it up and I'm like, holy shit. That's why we don't hear from John McTierum since basic anymore. Yeah, um, he, he, he like, I think he like pled guilty and took his, I need to read on it, up on it more, but I think he like pled guilty and took his, his, he his, did, uh, yeah. his thing. So he is um, out and in pre-production on a sci-fi action movie. Good. Yeah. And also like, it's not like something like a Weinstein, like he just, I mean, I'm not saying it's good to illegally wiretap people, but it feels like something that someone can plead guilty for, do your time and be rehabilitated. And I don't need to like keep his movies, uh, you know, 10 feet away from me. Yeah. That's more of a, <clears throat> that's more of a, please seek like psychological help. It's, I, I'm not, um, that's, that's, um, I, I'm more just worried about your psyche. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but, but uh, let's talk about so who did it. This is our second Rennie Harlan. Movie. Yeah, Rennie Harlan, and this movie, like I said, this movie has weird uh, correlations with Last Kiss Goodnight. Uh, yeah, Long Kiss Goodnight. Long Kiss Goodnight. Um, not only because shooting in the snow drove him fucking insane, but it is low key a conspiracy thriller movie um, in the midst of a big explosion, blast him up, uh, you know, summer blockbuster style thing, and also both are Christmas movies. Yeah, uh, I mean, Rennie Harlan basically did, I mean, he, he definitely has a, <laughs> um, I don't know what the next way to say this, a uh, mixed track record. But I think he yeah, has, like, a director I, I, I love despite thinking, I think 60% of his movies are garbage and, un like, are, you should not watch. Yeah, he, I mean, he's not a, he's not a, maybe this is the wrong way to say it. He, he is a director. He's not a storyteller, right? So if he doesn't have the right script and the right things behind it, he's not going to make a good movie out of it. Um, I guess would be my take. Like he's, he's an extremely good action director, but he needs a lot of like support, I guess would be. But like the movies that he makes that I, that I love, like I like this movie quite a bit. I love Long Kiss Goodnight. Uh, I like Cliffhanger quite a lot. And then, uh, I mean, he made, like, in a series that's mostly good, Nightmare on Elm Street 4 is fantastic. Like, it's I fucking so love that one. And um, Deep Blue Sea is, like, the second best or shark movie after Jaws. So Yeah, there's, like, there's like the, the straight-up, there's, like, the straight-up sincere good shark attack movies, which it's basically just the shallows and Jaws. Uh, and uh, Open and, Water. And then there... Uh, I haven't even seen Open Water. Is it actually good? You never seen Open Water? Yeah. Man, we gotta do that Shark Month. I feel like it would scare the shit out of me. Um, and <laughs> then, and then there's uh, and then there's Deep Blue Sea, which is on the you know the other side of the uh, of the coin, which is um, movies where sharks do ridiculous shit. Deep Blue Sea is maybe the only one of those that's good. Yeah. I mean, I also I have a soft. I need to watch it again, but like. 
I have I have a big soft spot for a movie he, he made in 2004 called Mind Hunters, which is like it's oh, ten little yeah. it's ten little Indians with um or you know ten little soldiers or whatever they it's called now um with um you know slowly eliminating a group, but they're all FBI serial killer profilers, and one of them oh, is a serial killer. I never saw it, but I remember it had a really interesting cast with like Kilmer and Slater, and um, I feel like you should watch it in Spooktober this year. <laughs> is it a horror movie? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a it's a it's a movie about a bunch of FBI profilers. One of them is a serial killer, and they're slowly hunting down the group, and you don't know who it is. Interesting. Um, I never saw the. Uh, I mean, I know he did uh, one of the prequel to Exorcist, and I, I never saw either. But uh, it's bad. Um, I haven't seen the Schrader one because it was really hard to see for a period of time. But the Rennie Harlan one is actually like a case study for me. Of um, if you're doing CGI, try to not do something that we know what it looks like. Because if you do a big blue alien thingy, I'm like, well, I don't see many big blue aliens, so I can kind of, you know, buy that it has weird proportions and all that. You know, I just mentioned The Mist. It's a great example of that. Um, But that movie has a bunch of CGI on stuff like dogs. And I'm like, I've seen a lot of dogs. I I know what they look like. (laughs) That's not a fucking dog. Just get a dog. They're everywhere. (laughs) I was like, literally, you get them for free. You know, you, do that. you know how my movies have budgets? You, you put down a big old zero for dogs there. <laughs> you, you took this cast to like Namibia or wherever was cheapest to shoot in Africa. And then you were like, well, we certainly can't afford dogs running at a camera. <laughs> but you know what we can't afford? Steve, the guy who spends too much time on his computer. <laughs> uh, I think with that... Uh, we talked a lot about what makes this not a diehard movie. Let's 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 cut. Let's go to uh, all the things we do really like about this movie because it is a ton of fun. It is a blast. Uh, yeah, in uh, talking about Die Hard Two, Colton Die Harder. <laughs> you ready for that, Peter? Oh yeah. Sorry, I didn't yeah. say yes. No. In my head, I want. I want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Want, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Aaron, why don't you tell us what happens in Die Hard 2 to Colin Harder? Yeah, using Harder or Die twice just feels like a waste. Die Hard 2 Harder. (laughs) It should have just been called Die Harder, right? Yeah, I mean, or you just make Die Harder a tagline. Which they may have. It's a mystery. Die Hard uh, 2 is, is fine. It's die the hard. second Die I, Hard. No I like confused. The, I do like... Th- this is kind of a nerdy thing. I like consistency of sequel naming conventions. Like, if you didn't have a type... If you didn't have a number... At the, at yeah. the, at the first one, like, you know, kind of like, just don't... If it's a number, it's a number. If it's not... Like, don't give me this fucking, like... Halloween six, and then start trying to do like the curse of know, Michael Myers, and yeah, no, just keep giving me numbers, and <laughs> or you can do an H T O thing where it seems like it might be the twentieth Halloween movie, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just keep giving. It's okay. Like you're not, you're not putting me off from it. Like it's it's fine. But again, if you're, it would be super weird. Like you know, Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman Four. 
Yeah. Like, it doesn't work. It feels uninspired at that. Pick a lane! Yeah, you're right. Okay, so in 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 the in keeping on that, it should be Die Harder. Also, Die Harder. This is like a pretty dumb movie. I feel like Die Harder is like the the right amount. That's of the dumb. right title. Yeah. I mean, die. I mean, Die Harder is a better title than Die Hard with a Vengeance and Live Free or Die Hard. All of the titles are bad except for maybe Die Hard. <laughs> Just to clarify, uh, you know, it's, I actually like a good day to Die Hard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> just watching, seeing uh, Bruce Willis half smiling on the cover. All I can think I know is everything. Commercial. Everything else around, <laughs> everything else around it is bad. But when I heard they were naming it a good day to die hard, I'm like, that's a good title. I like that. Well, especially based on the the baseline of stupidity that we've already set. Yeah. So, anyways, in Die Harder, Die Hard Two with a Vengeance. Um, John McClane is an L.A. cop, but he's in Washington, D.C. Do we know why he's in Washington, D.C.? Uh, it's where, Washington? yeah, it's where the... Oh, his family's uh, there. Where uh, the, the, whatever, the generic Bonnie, family Bonnie's family's is. there. Yeah, and for sorry. some reason, he is there early, and Holly is not flying with him. For some reason, he's, like, there early with the kids. So yep. I'm guessing he like flew early with the kids, and she was already on. A she's still trip. she's she's still trying to rebuild by by hand. Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot. Work never ends <laughs> for Holly Gennaro. I said Bonnie earlier, but that's her actor name, so it's a real name. Uh, anyways, so he's there, and he is getting uh, he's getting East Coast. Cop guff because now, as he explains, he's an LA cop. He doesn't like it much either, buddy. But come on, give me, don't give me a parking ticket at the, at the airport. But uh, you know, a really good, like, normal sequel way to let you know, okay, yep, he moved to LA because now he's an LA cop and everyone's kind of making fun of him for being an LA cop. Uh, he's at the airport to pick her up. Meanwhile, they are bringing General uh, Esperanza. I don't think John Leguizamo's in this movie, is he? He is. is yeah, he is. Um, but he's in it very briefly, and they um, dub over his voice. Uh, he claims that they, he showed up on set and they thought he was taller and, and had a deeper voice. <laughs> and then and then he showed up on set and they were just like, uh, we're going to put you I mean, I know Robert shots. Patrick's in there for like a second. Robert Patrick gets fucking smoked. I thought he'd be the, the Fritz or whatever. I thought I he'd be the, the right-hand man in this, but he absolutely is not. Oh, it is Esperanza. Why did I doubt myself? Because oh, that's a fake. That's a fake language. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, anyways, so yeah, so uh, what's happening is at the same airport, coincidentally on Christmas Eve, General Esperanza, one of those uh, military juntas you hear about so much in the papers in the eighties, um, is getting flown in <laughs> to be taken into U.S. custody. Uh, meanwhile, um, Colonel Stewart who is a notable right-wing person, is also at the airport. How all this kind of coalesces, I'll make it somewhat brief, is that uh, John McClane runs into a couple of Colonel Stewart's men in the baggage area and realizes something's going on. They have, you know, I've seen some fake IDs. I've seen some, some gear before. He's starting to get those feelings like, I've seen this before. I've been through this before. Weirdly, exactly one year ago. And uh, that something's up. So he tries to warn uh, the cops at the airport, played by, as we mentioned, Dennis Franz, who, uh, by, as Captain Carmine Lorenzo, who, McLean! 
He does not like McLean. I actually like the moment. We'll talk about this where he finally is like, oh, shit, McLean was right. Uh, that's kind of a fun moment. But uh, it ha- yeah, it, it, it essentially has no effect on the plot. No, he spends the whole movie just being like, this guy sucks. Uh, anyways. Uh, no one really is listening to him that something's up until all of a sudden they lose all control of the uh, the the flight control the the sorry the airport tower um, and they are not able to talk to the planes anymore the lights go out on the runways they have no way to land all these planes on this snowy uh, Christmas Eve and also the other airport because uh, this is Dulles International uh, the other airport in Washington DC is shut down. Due to weather. So they have ton, thousands of people are circling above. And the demand is basically this. Hey, General Esperanza's plane is coming in 58 minutes. Um, let it land. Let us leave. We'll give you control back of the the traffic control tower. And you can let everyone go on uh, their way. John McLean, though, since uh, his wife, um, Holly, is circling up above – Weirdly, in the same plane as one William J. Atherton, um, the, uh, the the tabloid journalist who they punched out for revealing that uh, – for putting their, their lives in jeopardy at the end of the first movie is also in the plane with him. Uh, we'll, we'll, we can talk about it if we like that or not. But anyways, John McClane uh, gets the whole gang back together. He has made no friends – Really, I guess at his own precinct, he's calling uh, he's calling Carl Winslow to run faxes on fingerprints. He takes uh, and try to figure out how, where these guys come from. He actually figures out relatively soon. It is uh, Colonel Stewart who's doing this, and Colonel Stewart also kind of announces himself, which helps. Uh, and then there's a lot of him trying to, while everyone is trying to solve it shitty ways, him trying to solve it better ways. And so you have all these scenes of him doing detective work, fighting against the local brass, um, uh, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then at one point they kind of show Sandler or sorry, uh, Colonel Stewart shows his power uh, and saying, Hey, we told you not to bring uh, guards to this area to take down the centena. You did. I'm going to show you what I can do, which is basically he, he pretends to be the control tower, tells an airplane to land, but gives the distant or the gives the elevation uh, incorrectly where sea level is and causes the plane to just smash into the ground and explode. Despite John McClane's best efforts, um, then, uh, then John Amos, who plays Major Grant, shows up because now the military is going to come and save the day. They find out that they've been cutting the power and controlling and have a headquarters set up at this church a little bit in the town near the airport, one of the little suburbs. They go to take it down. They're not successful. Everyone escapes. And that's where John McClane learns that the guns that they were firing um, at – that, that uh, the guns that Major Grant was firing at Colonel Stewart uh, were actually filled with blanks and realizes that Major Grant, who at first comes in all, McLean, what are you doing here, you rapscallion? Get out of here, you goofball. We don't need you. We're the military. It's a military problem. They find out, of course, that, like, you know, um, he's, they're in on it. That's why they wanted McLean out of there. So they're on the plane. <laughs> it's very, it's it's both an, an incredible twist, like it completely subverts the original, where the love, that SWAT love team the and the FBI so are just yep, dummies. Yep. But it's so convoluted in a way that it's like they could have just killed John McLean and that one cop, and then had free run of that church scene. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I love. I can't wait to talk more about the twist because that that truly is like the part that makes your kind of jaw drop when you realize what's going on. It's so good. Um, And uh, what do you know? The military aligns with other right wing military people. Um, So he realizes what's going on. They the general has landed. McLean was uh, not able to stop them. But he realizes what's going on. They're all they're all going to leave together. There's not going to be a showdown. They're all going to get on this plane and they're going to escape. And he he heads there. He has a final confrontation with them. Uh, ends up blowing up the plane, and then the lights from that blown up plane end up being landing lights for first his wife's uh, his wife's plane because they are about to land despite. Um, Despite not knowing where to go, because they are literally running on fumes, and then they're like, "Hey, everybody, follow the—I don't know—the strewn, burning dead bodies and gasoline and land your planes." And they do. Everyone saves the day, um, and Holly and John are uh, are reunited, make out, get to ride a golf cart away while people cheer them on. Um, we'll talk about this more next week. I really love. I love Holly and John's relationship in this movie. Like, even though they don't have that much time to interact, much like they did in the first movie, like when, like the fact that John, like one of the things that kind of works about John being a complete lunatic is that he really has committed to, uh, you know, both of them are kind of committed to each other after the events of the previous year that they, they love each other. They are just madly in love with each other and, and need to be together. And that, that scene of them at the end kind of reuniting, and um, uh, and Holly going, uh, terrorists took over our plane because she found out because uh, William Atherton, uh, like inter- had a had a stooge on the plane that intercepted the air traffic controller, and then he filed a story from the airplane, and everyone freaked out. But I just love the way Holly's like, terrorists took over the 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 airport and had, held us hostage, and he's like, I heard. <laughs> uh good good That's little good line joke. good joke um yeah i i you know what i think um i think that goes into some things that i i think is kind of i don't know if audacious is the right word because it's actually generally common but like i really think trying to pack in all your faves from Die Hard kind of works in this movie like i love that him and holly still have a conflict and he needs to rescue his life but like they are picking off where Die Hard left off i that's that's something i do quite like about it is that it's not a reset i really don't like sequels that are secretly um reboots where everyone just, just like, acts like oh you will we we both know that's why i like scream 2 quite a bit actually like yeah. almost as much as the original it's messier yeah. than the original but it's it's got an audaciousness to it um is that the movie is not a reset like her friends don't really believe in the killer but they're having anybody that was there and anybody that trust the people that were there are, are like, yeah, what Sydney went through was absolutely real and I need to listen to her. I can't just act like she's a, she's a fucking crazy person. Yeah. Like I can't, I can't play that game like we do in every horror movie. And similar to this, like John McClane is on edge. He's paranoid. He has good reason to be, but he doesn't get a full reset. And that's one thing that I think, this movie is messy. Like the the scripting, the plotting is messy. Um, some of John McClane's ad libs in this don't land well. At one point, she, yeah. he says to Dennis Franz, "When you go through the metal detector, what goes off first, the lead in your ass or the shit in your brains?" 
Yeah, it's a lot of either ad libs or overwritten jokes. What, is, what does that mean? It means that he's eating metal, I think. But this is a stupid, that's like a literal, I, I don't think that's what it means. Does shit set off metal detectors? In which case, I am going to be sitting aloft a lot of I metal mean, detectors this holiday season. A lot. I mean, I, I'm full of poop always. Yeah, you, I mean, I carry my poop with me. And I'll carry it with me like my dad. It's a concealed did. carry, though. It's different poop than my dad's, but I'm still carrying. It's not an open carry. I hope. <laughs> I like that we're doing two separate bits and not interacting with each other, <laughs> but just saying things separately. People I like can it. pick which bit they like better. <laughs> choose, choose your own bits. <laughs> when, when, um, oh no, my bit dived in a cave accident. <laughs> Um, when friend of the show, Bill Fox, had um, stomach stuff going on and he had a poop tube coming out of his belly button, um, that was an open carry. Jesus. <laughs> He's like one of two people on the planet I would make this joke about this. Where were we? Uh, anyways. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, sort of uh, uh, ad lib jokes that don't really work. The movie is kind of messy, but like yeah. one thing that like is a byproduct of this movie being a sequel to the first one, John McClane being paranoid, John McClane having his gun right at the beginning of the movie, yeah. is that um, he starts shooting guys like nine minutes in the movie, by the way. I, I counted thir- 13 minutes. <laughs> 13 minutes he is shooting people and discovering the plot, which I actually, so, hold so, on. So while, I, sorry, I appre- while I'm there. Okay, yeah. so 13 minutes in, he starts shooting people, whatever. This has a thing where Hans Gruber has the upper hand pretty much the entire movie down to like the last moment John has to yeah. do a, that crazy trick with the tape. Like Hans Gruber is continually taking back the power. All John McClane is able to do is occasionally save some people. Fly and the ornament. He makes the crazy military junta guys look incompetent because he's hitting them every single time immediately which adds to the messiness in the movie whereas like when Hans Gruber is directing it like an orchestra or Jeremy Irons Gruber is directing it like an orchestra like it doesn't feel messy it feels like you're being guided along and directed along a path in this it feels like John McClane is just like playing fucking (laughs) whack-a-mole hey hey my father's name was Hans Gruber call me Jeremy Irons Gruber (laughs) Uh, no I I think that's that's spot on because um, one I, I do appreciate though that this this movie is picking up where the last one let off. All you need to know is that did they stay together? Yep, he's an LA cop. He doesn't say, and I love my wife who we fuck now. All the, like he's like all you need to know is that he's an LA cop and know that things are working out with his wife, which was the you know emotional spine of the previous movie. And so like, what else do you need to do? Like. Die Hard was a big hit. No one needs to reestablish who John McClane is. I love that, like, you know, 11 minutes in, he's investigating the baggage area, and 13 minutes in, he's already killed a guy. Like, I wish more sequels would would do that. Like, really throw, like, hey, we all know you saw Die Hard if you're seeing Die Hard 2. He's in L.A. Or he's in D.C. He's an L.A. cop. They're still married. All right. You got it. Let's go. Uh, like, that's the part of this movie that I actually uh, appreciate quite a lot. I love the way it's like, yep, you got, like, here's Al. Here's the shitty reporter. Uh, we're going to give you all the stuff we like. And you know what? We know exactly what we're doing. There's, like, three jokes that are actually okay. Some are a little more forced than others. But, like, 
It's that idea of like him going, like, what are the odds the same thing is going to happen to the same guy on, you know, the two Christmases? And he has another thing of like – he has a couple other comments like that. And I like that. They're like, look, we know what we're – like, Rennie Harlan has a good and, – and DeSouza, the screener, has a good sense of, look, we know what this is. Like, we're going to have as much fun with it as we have. And who cares that it makes no sense that he's calling Carl Winslow to – um to to get a fax like you you don't want to not see carl winslow right like who cares that that william atherton is somehow on the same plane in the same row as holly Gennaro? that guy's an asshole you want to see him get punched again? you want to see what happened when she punched him and what's going on there and see him being kind of a sniveling wiener when he when he sees holly like it's um I really like the way it's just like we're just going to go for the fact that we're making another Die Hard movie. I, I actually think that's the part of the, that 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 kind of concept of this movie is what makes it work the best. Yeah, and I think that Rennie Harlan's a big part of that because like yeah, this script directed by John Tiernan would have been um, a nightmare because John Tiernan is a very deliberate guy and and um, his 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 mean his um. His job in the last movie was controlling the chaos, controlling the chaos. Because yeah. as we talked about, it was actually a very chaotic production, and they were rewriting shit the day that they would shoot it, and they would rewrite scenes later, and it's just a kind of chaotic thing cobbled together from a bunch of scripts and ad ad libbed scenes and improv lines and yada yada. And this movie, I don't think it would have worked if they had John Tiernan as a director no. with whatever script they ended up shooting with, because. Though he would have had more control of the chaos, he wouldn't have embraced the chaos the way Rennie Harlan had to. Um, and, like, there's some problems with that. Like, there's there's fight scenes in this where I'm like, where are you? Like, how have you yeah. not been lit? Or, like, moments where John McClane seems to be uh, fucking uh, breakdancing in the middle of the floor with his, uh, with his Beretta. And I'm yeah. like, how have you not been murdered? There's like four people shooting at you with fully automatic weapons. <laughs> like what you have plot armor right now. Um, like some of that Rennie Harlan stuff backfires, but the scenes were that need to be really chaotic and weird. Um, are they're, they're there. Cause this, this sort of, it almost like improvisational let's go to the next bit energy works yeah and you know i think when people are incompetent it can make those movies really really terrible that like that idea of like let's make a movie and we know it's a sequel to an, a beloved action movie that is essentially perfect and we're never going to talk so let's just have a lot of fun and some of those movies are the fucking worst because I think that I think the idea of let's just have fun with it implies to a lot of I think directors and writers and actors that you don't have to be talented and work really hard. And this movie is a great example of a movie where I think and this is kind of Rennie Harlan's MO. Like I don't need to take it seriously, but I do need to execute it well. Right. So he, you know, he has the budget, he has the talent, he has the, the, the actors and the stars to make everything that you're seeing enjoyable. And he understands the importance of 
of scene to scene giving you the moments that you need, whether it's John McClane, you know, fucking getting stuck while they throw literally an unlimited supply of grenades that know only to, to blow up when the first grenade goes or the last oh, grenade goes off. Oh, yeah, that fi- that quote unquote five second fuse is more like 15. <laughs> yeah, and then, he, you know, explodes out of the. Um, uh, you know, hits the ejector seat and explodes out. Like he's giving you those moments, and they, you know, they, they, they're they're great little shots, and they, you know, probably blew the fuck, uh, blew people fucking away in 1990, especially. You know, we're gonna make planes explode. We're gonna give you this crazy snowmobile chase, and like he he does it all extraordinarily well that it it makes you have fun because you you can turn your brain off. Right. Like you you can you can actually go and go, I don't like I don't need all of this to fit together. I can have it be messy and I can have a ton of fun because I am enjoying the fuck out of most things that are happening. And it's it's the it's the it's that idea that that's an easy thing to accomplish that leads to so many action movie or horror movie sequels that are like, yeah, this is just boring and eye rolling because I am not sucked in at any point because you 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 didn't take the whole thing seriously when the key is is to not to take the plot seriously yeah yeah <laughs> you're right the having the gall uh to say i'm going to execute this to the best of my ability um is really what makes separates this from um garbage uh inept thrillers uh, that also is true of comedy movies i would say yeah. that's that's one of the things that action movies and comedy movies have in 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 common is that if a director says, oh, we had so much fun on set, that ch- chances are it's a terrible fucking movie. <laughs> but like David Wayne talking about like, yeah, we were miserable on set. It was so fucking hard and we were cold all the time. And like, we had no idea if we were making a good movie. I'm like, oh, this actually might be a masterpiece. Um, well, and it, well, comedies do the other thing where they, they do the um, as long as we as long as we have funny people in the movie, the script doesn't need to be good. Which is brutal. We've talked about this a, yeah. a lot, a lot, where it's like, it's why so many SNL, very funny SNL people end up being not funny. Um, because uh, movies are a machine, particularly movies that are produced by powerful producers. Um, they're a machine and they don't have a lot of flexibility and uh, by design. And if you don't come into it with a strong script, very often you do not come out with it with a strong shooting script, right? Like, um, it requires a director who's willing to make it and do kind of a miserable experience to fix the script in the middle of production and do reshoots on unfunny dailies. And, like, that's um, that's that's the deal. But, like, Rennie, Rennie Harlan, it sounds like this was – just while we're there, it sounds like this was a miserable shoot. They shot oh, yeah. in, in somewhere between eight and ten different cities. They kept – they tried to shoot – um, snow scenes in areas that naturally have snow, like Michigan and, and Washington State, um, and you know, no snow. Um, they had to fill in that that lack of snow with um, rock salt and shredded paper and you know, fake snow, whatever they could get their hands on. Sometimes actual, like bringing in actual snow from Canada and and dumping it. Um, and the uh, Rennie Harlan said uh, the thing that made him most insane was that they were in, I think, uh, Colorado um, and they were shooting a scene and they had set up the set f- with fake 
blankets of fake snow for that snowmobile sequence. Um, and they were ready to go. And then a huge snowstorm came in. But it was not this kind of snowstorm you can shoot movies in. <laughs> <laughs> so they, them, after struggling with a lack of snow, all of a sudden the set got shut down. Uh, because they couldn't get snow. And uh, yeah, Renny Harwin said that made him go a little bit insane on the inside. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but like, when you think about it, it's like Nakatomi Plaza, they shot in LA. A lot of these people could go back to their fucking houses at night. Um, <laughs> they didn't shoot, obviously, all of it in LA, but like the set was in the set was in LA. Uh, was it Fox Plaza is in LA? Yeah. Um, like a lot of what they, they could do was was in LA. A lot of where the, they shot the stunts was in LA. And with this, they were bouncing all over the place. It sounds like the airport ended up being... Um, they shot some in Dulles and then did some in Michigan. Like they had to mix it all up, which probably also explains um, something that we talked about a little last week. And Bill talked about specifically of his biggest issue with really getting Die Hard Two in a headspace is that the the sets don't make any sense. And I get part of that is just because like. Well, an airport is just a bunch of randomly like interconnected uh, hallways and and jetways and blah 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 with like you know the air traffic control kind of being its own thing. But it, you're right, like there's so many scenes where like, oh, is that hallway in the same airport as the scene I saw 20 minutes ago? Because it looks very different. Yeah. Whereas like, okay, so it's easier to shoot Nakatomi Plaza, which um, you know, or Fox Plaza, I should say. Which gives you more leeway for improvisation. However, when you're flying all around the country, you don't have a lot of rooms, it's space to do this shit, which is why the, the budget ballooned. Um, they were given a larger budget, and then that budget ballooned from there. It sounds like something like $70 million in 1990 money. Yeah. Um, which is something like almost Ka-ching. double what the original yeah. was. Um, probably, probably a billion dollars in today's money. <laughs> adjusting for inflation, um, this movie was uh, Amazon. The, the the difficulty in, in jumping around the country and shooting makes uh, really reduces your ability to improvise anything because you're constantly worrying about the logistics of getting your fucking crew to the other side of the country so you can do some insert shots or coming back to where you were before because all of a sudden the weather conditions are better or whatever fucking reason that certain sequences they had to shoot in eight different locations. Um, sounds sounds absolutely wild. Super, super great way to spend a, a lot of money. Um, but with Nakatomi Plaza, as we talked about, because buildings tend to be some, somewhat consistent, at least in, in the way that like levels are laid out, um, you can... You, you kind of know, you can always see the window in the background to orient yourself. Yeah. You, you kind of can tell where each level is. And at airports are, yeah, as you just said, like, sometimes it seems like purposefully confusing. And if, like, yeah. they took away the signs in an airport, even someone like my dad, who's been in O'Hare for, who's been going to O'Hare for, whatever, 30 years, 40 years. I bet you you could confuse him. Oh, yeah. I mean, the amount of times where, I mean, I remember when I went to LAX and, like, Almost gave up and lived there. I can see why that Tom. I can see why that terminal guy from the movie The Terminal, Mister Tom Terminal, ended up just living in an airport. It's a mis- miserable airport. I fucking Forget hate LAX. It's hard this. to get to. It's hard to get out of. The it's so hard. It's it's not as bad as like Laguardia, but like I it's I think it's, bad. I think it's I think it's way worse because if for example you're taking an Alaskan Air connection to Delta, you need to leave the airport. Oh, and take, take a, a bus. cab 
yes. uh, or a bus and and then re-go through security. Or you can run five miles in underground tunnels so that you don't be late, which is what I did. <laughs> Not good. Yeah, miserable shit. Uh, uh, yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about a couple of things or people that I want to make sure we get to a little bit. So uh, this has uh, this one of the stars and kind of the head of the airport stars noted uh, reverse mortgage scammer Fred Thompson, um, who's a I giant piece of shit. Um, Great actor, was, huge, huge, asshole. just a huge piece of shit. I, I mentioned it because it occurred to me so. Fred Thompson, if you don't know, uh, yeah, he was on, I think, uh, what is it, L.A. Uh, law and Order. I was thinking L.A. Law. <laughs> Fred Thompson, <laughs> I got to tell you, of all the shows I could have been thinking, Fred Thompson fits in the worst, I think, maybe at L.A. Law. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, he was, on, he was on Law and Order. He was a senator. Uh, for a, for like 10 years in Tennessee. I assume he was a shitty Republican senator. Uh, but uh, he ran for president in 2008 as a Republican nominee. Uh, but really, I love that his claim to fame in between stopping being a senator and before running for president was trying to scam old people out of money by being the main pitchman for reverse mortgage scams, which if you don't know what reverse mortgage is, uh, it basically be like, hey, old people, what if I give you money to steal your house from <laughs> in 10 years? That uh, caused a lot of people to get kicked out of their houses because uh, they were still alive and had nowhere to go or essentially like you know, paid someone $50,000 for something that's worth a half a million dollars uh, so that, uh, you know, as opposed to just going and selling the house if that's what they wanted to do. Yeah, Huge. it's one of those things. Yeah, it's one of those things that has like an a, 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 a application that is beneficial to you um, that is used like in 2% of the cases. <laughs> yeah. Like and, if you're like, uh, if you're like, I need money so that I can, I'm going to need to transition into a retirement home. Um, in the next two years, like, but like, you don't tell the person you're filing the reverse mortgage with that. Like, yeah, like there's instances of that, but like, yeah, very often people like get themselves into these reverse mortgages and then, uh, oh, we own your house now and we don't want you to live there or, oh, we own your house now and now we're going to charge you exorbitant rent if you do want to stay here. <laughs> and also you could have sold it for five to 10 times as much and moved out if you wanted to then. And now you're screwed. Um, uh, yeah, it's basically ripping off old people. It, it it occurred to me as I saw Fred Thompson's stupid asshole face uh, that he is an actual version of the Sam Watterson. Uh, the, ro- the robot ro- old glory <laughs> robot insurance where he he was a he was a trusted person for old people that then a company hired to scam old people out of their money um, because that. He is a real life version of that. The Sam Watterson Saturday Night Live thing is that the joke is that he's sitting there telling old people they should buy robot insurance so they don't get eaten by robots. And Sam Watterson's a trusted name in the old people community, and so he he can rip them off of money that uh, 
that they they shouldn't be giving because you know spoiler alert there's no ro- roving robot gangs that you need protection from and Fred Thompson essentially became the real life version of that where you trust me old Fred Thompson anyways give a bunch this bank's gonna give you some money and I swear to God in ten years it won't punch you in the face <laughs> um, yeah but yeah um where were we but yeah Fred Thompson huge asshole huge um, piece of shit. Huge piece that's of shit. It. But yeah, I forgot uh, that he's in this. So th- that's that's one issue I have with the movie and is, is uh, John McClane keeps having to return to the, the control center. Yeah. And then he also has a janitor friend who is um, insane, I think. I think it's the joke. Sure. Yeah. I think that's the deal. He literally um, climbs into the bowels of the airport. To, he's like, I live here. Like, what is different about that scene from any horror movie about a janitor killer? <laughs> they even set it up as a horror movie. He taps him on yeah. the shoulder and John McLean almost fucking shoots him in the head. I thought you were going to steal my records. He does have some Christmas 78s that he's clinging to very closely. <laughs> um, I mean, I would steal them. Um... Well, I mean, who's going to miss that janitor? <laughs> we don't see him doing a lot of well, janiting. I am a humanist except when I can kill a janitor and dull us in the 90s and steal his records. <laughs> I mean, we're all humanists up to that point. Yeah. It's sort of a under, it's an understated thing, right? Everyone gets one freebie. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yours. That's your freebie. Um, but the what am I, I supposed I, to do? Learn how eBay works? <laughs> and now, I now it's John McClane in two thousand eight. I didn't. Learn I gotta in kill this janitor. I'm not gonna learn in two thousand twenty one. Yeah, I gotta kill this janitor. Yeah, uh, and they're also weird that like he's the person like in the he becomes the I guess Argyle. He is the Argyle because he shows yeah. up at the end of the movie, and I and I remember going, oh, so he's like. The Argyle, at the, like that was the first yes. time I thought of it because he serves almost no function. That's that's okay. That's one problem in this movie is that like they make the radio guy basically his Carl Winslow. Carl Carl Winslow has a, a quick cameo. Um, he like runs yep. fingerprints for John. Um, and then the radio guy is just this little nerd, and it's it's like not it's ne- none of the radio stuff, radio tower jamming stuff um, means uh, anything. Colonel Colonel Stewart making a tricking a plane into crashing into the ground. None of that shit makes sense or is fun to watch. It, the well, only I part like, hold on. I like the tricking the plane into crashing. I mean, it's fun to watch that really rad plane crash special effect, but it makes absolutely no sense. Actually, I, I just like, uh, like actually the airport is at this altitude now. No, I actually disagree. <laughs> Have you ever seen Charlie Victor Romeo? No. So Charlie Victor Romeo is like the scariest fucking movie. If you have any fear of flight in general, I would not recommend watching it. It's like it started off as a play to teach uh, pilots um, how little things like when people think of plane crashes, they think of like these like major things that go wrong, like an engine failure. And it's 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 basically six people acting out uh, black box recordings or six six incidents of acting out black box recordings. Um to kind of show people how these little things that could have been caught ended up causing the plane to crash. Um, uh, I, I, I'd, I'd, so they made a movie version that's essentially the same thing. It's just like – it's like almost like a, an anthology of real acting out, real like last moment black box transcripts. And um, there's like two of them that are based on the fact that like they just have sea level wrong. 
And so, like, they think they're going in, like, the, you know, it's dark. There's, like, one where they're landing in South America. It's dark. The sea level, uh, like, they have to do something to, like, recalibrate it every time. They calibrated it wrong. And, like, they literally are looking out the window going, it feels like we're further down. They're like, look at this. We still got, you know, X amount of feet to go. And then just, you know, the, the plane goes dark and you know that they crashed. So, I actually, like... That actually feels tremendously realistic based on how – and very scary as to how easy it would be to crash a plane because they can't – they don't use the windows, you know. They just are looking at their instruments. I have I have other problems with the sequence though, which is that like, okay, so that one, sure, like they don't have enough time to really communicate with the cockpit and then they eventually figure out how to talk to the cockpit, whatever. They're not a remote airport. They're in D.C. There's – a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of fucking airports in uh, in a 50-mile radius. Put someone in a car, <laughs> send them to another another airport and say, we, hey, we need to talk to these, we need to talk to these, uh, send them anywhere with a phone line that still is active. Well, yeah, there's another airport in D.C., which they say is closed due to weather, but I also feel like, okay, sure, it's closed due to weather. Let's risk it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. I Let's don't really get the understand. good snow plows. <laughs> like once you start asking these questions, you're like, okay, so yeah. I, I okay, so like I take for I accept the premise that they have some jammer that can jam their signal, and you know, it, it's 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 very sweaty. Buddy, if you don't ex- uh, if you don't accept the concept of jammers, <laughs> bad news for all movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, I'm willing to accept that. Um, and then, like, what's nice about, like, Die Hard 4 is that, like, in Die Hard 4, there, it, like, opens with a sequence of people fucking with traffic lights, right? Which yeah. is just, like, um, that's the movie basically being, like, in this movie, hacking is magic. Hacking just does whatever you want it to do. Hacking is <laughs> hacking is magic. In this movie, like halfway through, they're like, okay, this the jamming is happening. I'm like, okay, great. And they're like, we have no way of talking to the planes. And I'm like... You are in the capital of the country. You can go send some somebody out. Send two of your – nobody's fucking doing anything. Send two of your air traffic controllers out to another airport or somewhere with a phone so you can call another airport. And also the idea that like planes are just going to fly around in circles for 58 minutes until they run out of fuel is, is fucking preposterous. Like – Planes are like, okay, they're not letting us land. I need to make an emergency <laughs> landing. That's how yeah, planes work. Exactly. Well, and, and even though it's stopping the tower from communicating to the planes, I think the planes could call another airport. Like, yes. how, I don't know how – like, they, they, they talk to people, like, to your point, you know, dozens and dozens of miles out. They couldn't call the other airport in D.C. and be like, hey, guys, I don't know if you're paying attention here, but, like – we can't land. Uh, also, the other thing that, like, again, not to sound like CinemaSins or something like that. Um, it's the era where, uh, because cell phones weren't a thing, planes had phones everywhere. As a matter of fact, there's a phone in the bathroom on these planes because that's how William Atherton calls, files a story from the plane, uh, which kind of undercuts the... Uh, yeah. That actually makes the plot sweatier. Why don't they just say it's an old plane without phones and then you can cut William Atherton from the plot altogether? But instead, they kind of wanted to 
have the William Atherton is a, a douchebag, which this, which I'm fine with. Like him, I said, like I'm not I'm not here tased. to. Yeah, it, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny, and I, you know that was my point earlier. Like it's 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 recognizing that we can make a very well done competent action movie that feels like it's hitting on some of the areas that were successful in the first movie without needing you needing to take the plot seriously right like but it is funny that like oh my god you guys can't communicate has anyone tried the bathroom phone because we have that because it's 1990 and there's phones on every seat <laughs> did you when you did you fly were you all like, you know this is one of those weird like where technology shifted between our um you know, the eight years apart or whatever we are. We're not eight years apart. Eight years apart, yeah. Seven I'm years apart. Thirty, and you're thirty-seven, yeah. thirty-eight. Thirty-eight, yeah. We're like, I, there used. I, I remember when there used to be planes with a little credit card slider or phones mm-hmm. with a credit card slider on every single seat behind. Like they didn't used to have that TV. They had a phone. Uh, I uh, yes, I remember this also because for some silly reason, um, when I was a kid, I flew first class a couple times. Um, no, no fucking idea why, because that ended really quickly. I think what it was, was that like, they shoved my older siblings in the back and they're a home alone situation coming from Chicago. Certain people in your family are in first class. But I think my, I think my, my parents, um, I wasn't like a handful as a kid. I was not, I was no Kevin McAllister, but I think my parents just wanted to keep a closer eye on me. Maybe I was really young. Um, I don't know. Um, maybe I still need to be like bottle fed or something. I, I have no fucking <laughs> clue. Um, but I, I no, no, because I remember specifically having my own seat and thinking it was huge. But uh, first I was in I, I flew first class for some reason a couple times as a kid. And then since then have only flown whatever business class, whatever the one is that's like right below, right below first class, oh, yeah. whatever they call it on American Airlines. It's like right below. First it's just class. like you get you still have a very narrow seat, but you get leg room. <laughs> yes, exactly. Economy plus is what they call yeah. it on United, I think, whatever. Yeah. Um, I love that. Like it kind of they, they figure out like, OK, if you're in coach. We're going to squish you height-wise and width-wise. If you're in first class, we're not going to squish you anyways. Then we have this other thing that is going to squish you width-wise. <laughs> but height-wise, you're going to be sitting pretty nice. Yeah, I, I flew I flew United a week ago, and uh, some of it was having not flown during COVID. But uh, um, my fucking God. They treat us like cattle. <laughs> it's fucking terrible. Um, but the um, the point I was making is I did I did have the 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 phone thing a hundred percent, and I remember picking it up and just hitting random buttons, and my dad reaching over and snatching it out of my hand as if I had picked up a chainsaw. He was like, <laughs> he was like I, I remember that too. Like, <laughs> you have do not have call. no idea how much that costs. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, like, I re- always remember having the credit card slider. So I do remember my dad having this or my mom or someone having the same reaction um, when I picked it up. But it's like, what was I going to do with it? I think that was just like a little bit of like boomer parents being like just don't fucking be a kid if you could not be a kid for a little bit that would be nice yeah yeah i think i think that was it we were like don't embarrass me around my business class friends (laughs) no (laughs) i'm on an airplane this is fancy stuff still you're like my four-year-old is curious about a phone unacceptable I, i don't know how long it took my dad for to to stop dressing up to go on the plane for family vacations like he would get there and put on his fucking tommy bahama shirt or whatever his polo but like on the plane he would he would always be wearing a blazer 
on the I, yeah. I, it took him most of our childhood to do that even when even when it was just like him and my mom in first class and the rest of us in, in coach um Man, which happened really I, I don't know whenever I was old enough to not be a nuisance um but I remember him getting like dressed up for the plane and my mom making fun of him because she was wearing like I don't know jeans <laughs> <laughs> It's some old man thing. I don't understand it. What a weird, like, for a generation that, like, saw having children as a societal obligation, they were really embarrassed that we existed. (laughs) (laughs) Like, back then it wasn't optional. Like, you're here to procreate. You fucking boomers better have – you're literally called the baby boomers, which implies children exploding out of your private parts as much as possible. And then, like, when a kid did anything kid-like, it's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm trying to, you know, stop him from being uh, (laughs) – existing the way he is right now. Yeah, they were the interim generation where they're like, I can't hit you, but I want to. You think that's what it was? Like, a generation raised by punches that couldn't punch? Just made him (laughs) – just drove him fucking crazy? Yeah, like – because, like, as annoyed as I've ever been at any child, I've never thought, hmm, a good – a good sock on the chin is what this child needs. <laughs> no. uh, yeah, I guess you're right. Like, I was – I was uh, – I started being spanked um, and then like – Oh, yeah. I tra- I was transitioned out of spanking at some point. It was like three or four where they just decided, <laughs> I said that like, as if they were like, well, this day you're getting 20 spanks. But tomorrow we're, we're going to work you down to 18. No one can go cold turkey on spanking, all right? <laughs> you might get a, you that's might get how a you fixation. Do, <laughs> Dr. Spock said that's how you do damage. So we're going to hit you 20 times, the 19 times, the 18 times. We're going to get you down there and then it's going to be one. And then we throw away your fucking G.I. Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> you never want your G.I. Joe's thrown away Don't get down to one spank mark um, Yeah I, uh, I, 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 would, I Did you know Peter mm-hmm. This will be a perfect cut Because it's unrelated to everything we just talked about You know this is the first movie where someone sucked into a jet engine Really? Yeah I, I mean people have been uh, hit by propellers By planes yeah, In movies before uh, Where's the Lost Ark Yes, I mean I'm sure other movies as well. Propellers were were all the, uh, but there's uh, I went looked. I was like, oh, I wonder like you know getting sucked into a jet engine feels common now, but 32 years ago, like how how common was that? You have to have an R-rated movie usually. You, it has to be related to an airport. Yeah, this is the first movie where someone is sucked into a jet engine. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty rad. I mean, it is cool as hell. They should have nailed this point a little bit harder. For some reason, um Stewart goes on the wing of the plane, brings no one with him. Um <laughs> he's pointing a gun at John McClane. <laughs> well, I get that he can't shoot. He can't shoot cuz he might wing. fuck up the, pl- the the plane, whatever. Um but there's 50 other guys on the plane just like that you got to send those guys first. Send like six guys out to just toss this fucker into the jet engine. Like, yeah, just just fucking like the whole the whole advantage of having a military coup is that it's not a democracy, right? Like if you tell six people for the greater good Go run full speed at this guy. You're going to get hurt or fall off the plane and not go with us. But it's fine because I'm your 
I'm your military commander. Like the only two times you get away from that, get away with that is the military and cults. Yeah. And there's a, there's a moment when, um, Colonel Stewart said it puts a gun to, uh, one of his, his seconds heads and he's, and he pulls it and the gun is empty and he says, you fail me again, that chamber won't be empty. So like yeah. he has built up a cult like allegiance of right wing terrorists. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. That's the only the, kind you can yeah, have. Yeah. The ending of this movie is really fucking rad. I think that they they didn't quite nail the geography of this fight, but, like, what the actual actions are are pretty great. Oh, yeah. He manages to knock this guy into the propeller. He's tired as fuck. He loses the fight against, um, uh, against Colonel Stewart. Um, also, my wife pointed out, she's like, that plane wouldn't be able to take off. Like planes have to land when a bird goes in it. It goes in the the, the engine. Like, and that's already at at cruising altitude. Yeah, great news for your wife. The plane doesn't take off. Basically, <laughs> we never find out. Um, and Colonel, uh, I was gonna say, is Colonel Stewart goes back in, and I love this. He wins the fight. He kicks John John McClane off the off the plane. He's like, "Haha, we won." He closes up the hatch, all proud of himself. And then all John McClane has to do is throw the lighter at yeah. the at the trail. It lights up down the thing. It's so it's such a cool practical. I love the way it does effect. like leap the because it's pouring out like leaps the you know twenty feet in the air to get from the ground to the tank. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, it does stretch plausibility a little bit, but, like, you know, there's, I think Mythbusters might have done something similar to that. Yeah, but it's rad, Peter. But it it feels good. Like, it feels really cool. And then, um... It, it the trail blowing up and then lighting up the runway, which allows Holly's plane to land because yeah. it can see the runway now because of that massive explosion, uh, which cuts through the the storm, is like the sort of plotting the first movie had, where it's like yeah. It's like, all right, we had this problem the whole movie. We're going to solve this problem by fucking blowing up an entire plane full of these assholes. And I love the fact that, like, there's there's no – there's no uh, – punching out general esperanza there's no uh you know him finally beating um uh colonel stewart there's not none of that really it's just him being like i found this one weird trick to get an advantage over (laughs) you colonel stewart's hate this one weird trick um (laughs) and then you get to see everybody in the plane freak out in the flash of the blast as the plane comes apart it's such a rad note to end the movie on um and it's 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 a movie that like is overlong and kind of clumsy like i think this movie probably could have cut 20 minutes um i I think the weirdest problem is that they leave the airport and come back to the airport yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. that's the part that gets super sweaty even though let's talk a little more about almost capturing general esperanza like doesn't matter just let him get away like cut cut all that shit out of the movie (laughs) I do think there's a there's almost a better thing where they make that one connective tissue. Like if I'm going to Monday morning quarterback, so much of it works, right? Like so they um, they go to the church and then everyone gets away on snowmobiles and they're there with John Amos, who's like, we're trying to kill him. And that's where you, you know after that that's the aftermath where he realizes that, hey, I had that guy in my sights. I know he should be dead, and realizes that the guns marked with like the blue tape are shooting blank so they can pretend that they're out to get him even though he was safe the whole time and let him escape like that scene is great 
you almost then should just make that a chase to the airfield because now he knows like you know uh, john ams can go and go all right we're gonna circle back and try to get him and then john mcclain realizes what's going on and he has to figure out a way back the part that because that feels like at least the boom 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 action sequence the part that gets sweaty is that like they have that like finally raid on the church people escape and then he has to go back to the airport he goes back to the control tower he yells at dennis franz and then even though i think the scene where dennis franz when he like shoots the fake gun and it's like hey do you believe me now asshole and dennis franz for the first time in the movie is like oh shit <laughs> also uh, there's no way john mcclain wouldn't have gotten lit up there's a whole room full of cops uh-huh. yeah, I, know, I know i know um but <laughs> um but then that goes to a scene of him like okay you finally convinced the cops they're the cow- cavalry and then while i again just a really good example of how this uh, the scenes in this movie are really good, but sometimes the the math to get from point A to point B is is, is B is dumb and convoluted. Dennis Franz immediately crashes his cop car into a cab. It's a very very funny sequence that like we're gonna go. I got the cops on my side. The cavalry's here, and then Dennis Franz not only crashes the car, but then starts yelling at the cabbie about whose fault it is. Funny. But then kind of, again, makes it so sweaty for him to go, okay, well, now how I'm going to get there? Oh, the other tabloid journalist who's there, they have a helicopter. I'm going to have her fly it. Like, you know, like that whole that whole thing really kind of ruins that momentum and makes it feel like, oh, are you going back for a checkpoint of some sort? Like, just, you know, don't go back to the airport at all. Just follow them right to the to the plane. yeah yeah there's there's a lot of sweatiness of of these these sprints out and sprints back you know uh, that that i think could be resolved by um having well a having a tighter script from the beginning but um by through judicious editing like this is a movie that is 10 minutes shorter than die hard yep and somehow feels feels about 20 minutes longer like it it feels like a three hour movie for some reason, um, which I it, it, it's it's a little bothersome, um, and it's not because yeah. it's like a bad movie. Like we were just talking about, like I, I find this movie very admirable and very fun, and like it scratches an itch that that almost none of these eighties action movies do. Um, but it 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 feels like a movie that was rushed out um, in many ways, and one of which is is just like. The and then this happened and then this happened uh, sort of nature of the editing, um, which is it doesn't have any sort of causal effect in in most of the sequences, right? It just feels like it's like oh we went here and we did this thing we went and then we came back we went here and did this thing and we came back like I I don't feel like Holly is any in any better or worse shape. And there's a thing that I was watching the movie and I was like, how do you make this movie cleaner? Like, how do you make this movie a little bit cleaner? And, like, for one, yeah, you can have the airport actually be under siege. But, like, that's a little bit too much. Like, the first movie, like, I I wouldn't really like it. And then then my other idea was, like, all the planes are landed. None of them are allowed to taxi to the gate. Nobody is allowed to leave the plane. 
And then they will shoot rockets or mortars at any at the plane if even one person tries to get off of it. Like you do like a weird sort of speed, but at zero miles per hour thing. Like these planes are basically just massive hostage tubes uh, as they get hotter and they run out of fuel and they run out of fuel and people start to freeze inside the planes. Like that's one approach, but it's also like it's a plane. So you want to see planes almost crash. And so I don't quite know how you get the die hard at an airport without a bunch of sweaty bullshit um yeah it is like it is it is a little tough again i driven (laughs) i like i mean i like the idea that the planes can't land and i you know i i think there's some fat that could be cut um i i do think you know um the saddest thing about the movie honestly is that when uh al-qaeda was watching this i was like oh terrorists on airplanes got a great idea for a 9-11 <laughs> this person only watches Rennie harlan movies <laughs> yeah i think you know we don't need to make this like a diehard too and make it a little too overlong um i think i think we hit it yeah yeah i have one thing one one last thing to note um so william sadler um in the beginning of this movie is oh, in hot great buns. shape hot it, buns he's doing tai chi naked watching television which is also Typically not the point of Tai Chi. Um, typically trying to find some sort of meditative state. He's just doing Tai Chi and getting angrier. Um, yeah. And then he does a thing where he uh, does a spin move with the remote control and turns off the TV with it like it's a gun. And I just want to know, does accuracy matter that much? <laughs> uh, it also never comes up again. This like is something he doesn't... I did when I was eight. This is not something that's impressive. If he threw a if he threw a knife into the TV, I'd be like, "Cool." <laughs> yeah, he, it never really comes up again, right? Like he's not like he's not like, "Oh shit, this guy's a naked ninja." <laughs> uh, he, no, he puts no. Up a per- he puts up a good fight against. McLean, but yeah, like, McLean almost wins after just winning a fight he shouldn't have won. Yeah, it's uh, it's like someone saw a Van Damme movie that morning and was like, "I got an idea." Apparently, it was it was Rennie Harlan's um idea. Oh yeah, that's that shocks me. What's zero? What's less than zero percent? <laughs> I think it's just a different emotion at that point. Uh, <laughs> I think. I think. Uh, I mean, it would be weird if it was uh, William Sadler, right? Like, guys, I was checking out myself after a shower, and my buns are hot. Can we work that in? Hot buns. Can I show off my hot? My my buns are never going to be this hot again. We're the. It's the end of the eighties, beginning of the nineties. It's the time for hot buns. Yeah. Absolutely. Directors in a few years are going to actually demand that I gain 15 pounds. Yeah. They're going to want to hide my buns under a bushel. Yeah. Let my let my buns shine. <laughs> and he's like, oh, Willie. Do you think that right. do you think that William Sadler stopped being this like cut monster because people te- turn people I mean it wasn't a meme, but people teased the scene a lot. Um I do think that probably where Sadly realized he made a mistake was once as a culture we stopped referring to butts as buns. Mm. Like now that's just a joke. Because like being like, hey, Will, I saw your movie. Some hot buns. Like that feels complimentary, but like I do think 
few years after Hot Buns, you know, went out of fashion, his friends going, "Hey, saw that movie on VHS. Nice ass." <laughs> <laughs> Took a real turn for him mentally. And I, I found that, I found that obscene. I found that rude. And I, I, I decided to go through a body transformation. Um, where I, I did not have buns of steel anymore. My my wife came up to me, said, "Hun, been thinking about this, and while I can't describe pornography, I know it when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> your your hot buns have damaged the reputation of this family." Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I said. Meredith, this family needs me. And I, I went down to Famous Dave's, the barbecue place, and I ordered up three racks of ribs. And I, because of the high protein, I actually got stronger buns. Um, <laughs> this was just an unrelated story about how I ate a lot of ribs. Honey, I've told you a million times, it's not a hot buns competition. Your buns... Are fine. I married your buns. All right? You don't have to constantly make this into a who's got the hotter buns competition. Look, you make it into who's got who's got a hotter front parts, you're gonna win every time. <laughs> but but buns in 1990, they belonged to William Sadler. And he became a little William Sadder. Um, yeah, that's that's all. That's all I got. I that's, feel like it's, I, think I think those are good. our final thoughts. Yeah. Uh, it's a good movie. Uh, I would space out your time between Die Hard and Die Hard Two as much as possible, and then watch it because it's a lot of fun. So watch Die Hard right now, and then watch Die Hard Two on your deathbed. <laughs> technically, I'm just uh, technically I'm just listening to what you said. <laughs> So what I would do is uh, watch Die Hard while we're recording this, and then once you hear this, watch Die Hard 2. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, Queen. Tough to do, but not impossible for the two of us only. You can't say that they didn't have a heads up. We tried our best. Next week, uh, I think we're going to do a double, uh, not a double episode, but I think we're going to have Ryan Bolin on for the next two episodes. Uh, because uh, we're we're kind of getting into where we thought this month would be extra fun, extra spicy, extra. While while the next two movies don't have a, a Christmas theme, we're gonna bring the pettiness of Aaron and Peter fighting about which one's better, which is also an important part of the season, which is family members bickering. Um, and so uh, we we did the only thing that we could was bring on the closest that Peter has to family that's been on the show. Uh, I remembered an, uh, uh, an exception, but I'm going to say it still counts. Um, and <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yeah, don't 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 wade to the middle of this minefield. Um, <laughs> I am I am bulletproof <laughs> in this specific scenario. Uh, but yeah, we're gonna have Ryan Bolin on, great friend of the show, Spooktober buddy this year, to chat about Die Hard with a Vengeance, and then for a Christmas episode, Live Free or Die Hard. Uh, Peter and Ryan believe in their hearts of hearts, 
that Die Hard with Vengeance is uh, the only thing, the only movie that's comparable to the first one in terms of quality. I believe it's your favorite, even though you recognize Die Hard is the better. But like your, per- you and Ryan's personal favorite is Die Hard Three. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah, I think one versus three. We'll find out next week which one I, I like more. I used to say Die Hard with a Vengeance was my least favorite, which still means it's a four star movie. I I don't know. I, I think I could see Die Hard with Vengeance top in Die Hard 2. Um, um, I, I, uh, I'm pretty excited to see how I react to that movie because it is like kind of a, a uh, secret lethal weapon movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not even secret. It was they planned on it. Yeah, yeah. But when I first watched it, I was just like, I like John McClane having a partner who fucking hates him. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's funny. The movie would have been a million times better though if Carl Winslow was his partner, <laughs> <laughs> just swearing at him. Yeah, just being so, an asshole. Yeah, um, or like very supportive, and it's just a different movie. But it's just weird that him and Carl Winslow are running around the streets of New York. Anyway. Uh, we'll get there uh, next week on We Love to Watch with a Vengeance. Aaron, would you say you're a die-hard fan of these movies? Hmm. Yes. Good night. Good night. so much for listening to we love to watch if you made it to the end hopefully you liked what you heard today and if you'd like to hear more please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch and if you can chip in a few bucks that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward uh it wasn't an implicit threat by peter he just didn't know how to say it but either way we'll continue to make more but it would be helpful uh, as we explained to our loved ones where all our money is going which is all on server space uh <laughs> if you can't <laughs> uh if you don't have a few bucks to chip in we totally understand and you want to support the show Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help and so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches Peter and Aaron. <laughs>